Jesus is King. Welcome to the One Peter Five Podcast, Rebuilding Christendom, Restoring Catholic Culture and Tradition. I'm Timothy Flanders, Editor-in-Chief of One Peter Five, and I'm joined today by my friend and newest contributing editor to One Peter Five, Dr. John Joy. Dr. Joy, it's an honor and a pleasure and a joy as always. How are you doing? Doing well. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's great to be uh, it's great to be chatting with you today, and it's great to be joining the the board at One Peter Five. Thanks for having That's- me. Yeah, absolutely. We're very, very excited for your work. Um, we have one other theologian, per se, on the editorial board, which is Dr. Mike Cirillo over at Franciscan. And uh, I was really excited to bring John on board as well. Um, he's done a lot of great work already writing that 1 Peter 5. And you've published um, three books now. Um, is it three books or you've got the original dissertation was republished, I guess, but it's three total books, right? Yeah. Three total. Yep. Um, so the, the disputed question is on papal infallibility, which we've already published. Um, a lot, a good chunk of that book is already published at one Peter five, but there's additional content. We did a whole podcast on that whole book. Um, and then your dissertation, uh, was republished by Aruka press. And that dissertation is on the magisterium. So you're really there's theologians have different sort of expertises and your expertise in particular is the magisterium. Um, And but not only that, you also have an atonement book on the atonement, the atoning death of Christ, uh, St. Thomas's doctrine of vicarious satisfaction. So since we're going to talk about the magisterium, perhaps you could give us a a blurb on this. What's so great about this book? Uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't. Uh, I didn't go into the study of theology intending to end up a, a, as a expert, so to speak, on the magisterium. That's that was a very much a secondary interest. So, so this, the theology of Thomas Aquinas, generally speaking, is is my uh, was my primary love and, and area of study in graduate school and so forth. Um, so I ended up uh, studying his theology of the atonement quite extensively. Saint Anselm. Uh, it's an important precursor to St. Thomas Aquinas's thought, um, <clears throat> and so that little book is a is a fruit of 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 that whole uh, study and research and interest. It's primarily a critique of the um, classical Protestant view of penal substitution, uh, which is which is fairly widespread in some Catholic circles. I mean, you know, it's always dangerous to make too much of a generalization but it's but it's definitely it's definitely out there in catholic circles and it's one of these protestant uh ideas uh that that is that goes under the radar somehow so a lot of catholics don't immediately recognize it as a protestant idea uh luther and calvin's views on the atonement were not as not as um not as loudly and publicly disputed as their ideas on justification by faith or sola scriptura and things like this um, and Thomas Aquinas's account both preserves what is, well, preserves is the wrong way to put it since he wrote before Luther and Calvin, but contains what is valuable in the insights of Luther and Calvin while also guarding against uh, some of the excesses that they fall into. So uh, it's a thin book. Uh, it's it's not heavy reading or anything like that, um, but hopefully worthwhile for anybody who picks it up. Uh, and then, yeah, the, the magisterium as a, as a topic of study um uh came about almost accidentally i guess in the course of my uh broader theological studies i started to get frustrated you know as a theologian you you need to be able to tell uh what what degree of authority is, is behind different kind of magisterial documents uh and so occasionally i would come across that and i started to get frustrated at the at the lack of clarity in the theological literature about that question and so started to research it more and more and more uh, and just realized there's a there's a ton of work here to be done, and uh, and so I I ended up continuing to research and write on that for my licentiate degree and my doctorate, um, primarily selfishly just just to solve for my own uh, to my own satisfaction how to approach those questions in my own theological work. Um, and uh, once and I think I was able to do that again to my own satisfaction. Uh, so if it's able to help others out as well, then I'm uh, thrilled about that, of course. Um, yeah, and so that's 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 what I mostly uh, write about these days, I guess. But uh, but the broader theology of St. Thomas Aquinas is still where my where my heart is. That's great. I, I, I'm really glad that you were able to 
you were able to bring out this text as well as what ended up being the dissertation. You know, the, the dissertation is not necessarily what you you love the most. So that's fine. And it's a very subtle topic, the atonement. Very a lot of subtlety and a lot of nuance and a lot of mystery, really. Um, it's difficult. And I'm glad you've you've heard of this because it's fundamental as we'll talk in another podcast when we eventually get through this one. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the heart of the faith. Christ's death on the cross for our salvation. That's what it's all about. Uh, the degrees of authority of popes and bishops teaching, that's super important, but it's but it's important for preserving the essence of the faith. But but this is the essence of the faith. Yes, this is why anybody becomes Catholic right there. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, excellent. So uh, the latest news, oh, before we get into our, our uh, controversial new news here, once again, we always reply in your support viewers listeners one peter com slash donate we are a non-profit so we do have mouths to feed bills to pay and we can't do it without your support so please become a monthly donor one peter com slash donate so the latest news out of the vatican which it's a pretty big one i think in the in, in the past few years probably um is that uh tucho healing me with your mouth fernandez has been appointed the new head of the form thing for the thing formerly known as the holy office uh, i don't know what it is <laughs> it's like the latest title here or the latest method or i don't know um so can i have any of your reaction your thoughts you're a theologian of the church you deal with doctrine this is the institution that's supposed to deal with doctrine i don't know what it's dealing with now what are your thoughts um my thoughts on reading that news to be very honest we're limited to a bit of a groan and an eye roll. I mean, it's uh, it's gotten to the point now where where nothing surprises me anymore. Um, so that was my immediate reaction. If if I try to take a step back and, and think about it historically, uh, it is it it is a it is an image of uh, which was charged with maintaining the purity of the faith, uh, and then the holy office was an institutionalized form of doing that for centuries, turned into the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith uh, more recently, but even there, Cardinal Ratzinger for, uh, for decades uh, led that department and, and did so uh, ably and well. Uh, and now the, the new title, I think, if I have it right, is the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith. Uh, and, and here we are. So it's, it's hard to place a great deal of confidence uh, in what we're going to see from that dicastery, but God only knows the future. Um, it, as an as an organ intended for the for the clarification and preservation of the faith, it's hard to be uh, optimistic about its success doing that under under its current leadership. Um, but fortunately, it's not it's not an organ. In, it's not an institution of, of divine origin. I mean, it, this is a uh, this is an office um, instituted by the papacy as an extension of his work. So, so uh, it, it doesn't mean the end of the church if it uh, if it flops or fails, and we'll have to continue preserving and defending the faith to the best of our ability, regardless of what we see coming out of the the dicastery. Yeah, it's kind of like the last gasp of the inquisition really because the inquisition like you said it was just uh like a, a local phenomenon of dominicans and church members trying to work out these difficult difficult cases and then it went worldwide and now it's it's an off it's an institution in decline uh it's now in decline so losing its relevance and and use um so uh but th this is highly relevant to our topic about magisterium uh dr joy is beginning a series at one peter five called traditional doctrine on the magisterium 101 and i'm really excited about this because it's going to really translate all of your great academic work that you have for the common layman to really break down because you know catholic family we're looking at tucho fernandez in the holy office and all the other things that have happened and there's we have on the one hand we're confused about what is our level of assent to this or that thing 
what is my level of ascent to this 200 page encyclical by Pope Francis? Do I have to believe in climate change? Do I have to believe in the death penalty thing? What is my level of ascent? Uh, then we have critics of the trad movement coming over and saying, well, we're we're descender dissenters. Trads are really no better than those who dissented from humane vitae, uh, you know, because we are recognizing and resisting, for example. This is the, the phrase that we use. And so I'm really happy to have uh, Dr. Joy that, Joy, that uh, you're willing to uh, stick your neck out here and, and speak from a, a academic theologian perspective about all this stuff. But before we get into all those meaty topics, um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, yourself? If anybody's not familiar with your work, you're a Wisconsinite. Uh, you teach at a, at a Catholic high school. Uh, you used to work for Mor Morlino, I think. Tell us a little bit about your career as a theologian. Sure. So, uh, yeah, if you go back to the beginning, I was an undergraduate uh, theology student at Ave Maria College in Michigan. So my wife and I are both natives of the great state of Michigan, <clears throat> where I know you reside. Um, I went to Ave Maria College and studied theology there uh, before it moved to Florida. Uh, worked for a couple of years in a Catholic parish um, and then went to graduate studies at the International Theological Institute in Austria. So I was five years uh, living abroad with my wife and one small daughter when we moved out and uh, two young sons additionally when we moved back. Uh, so that's where I did master's and licentiate level work, primarily studying St. Thomas Aquinas' theology, um, but with a broad philosophical uh, background as well. So the program of studies at the ITI in Austria is, is one, of the, one of the last great um, Thomistic courses of, of theology. Um, after that, I taught at a high school in Indiana for about four years while I was uh, finishing up the writing of my doctorate, which I did uh, with Dr. Barbara Hollinsleben at the University of Freiburg in Switzerland. Uh, and then in 2016, moved out to Wisconsin to work for Bishop Morlino, the late uh, Bishop Robert Morlino, uh, the the extraordinary ordinary, as Father Z always called him. Yes, indeed. Uh, rest um, in peace. We we love Morlino. Good bishop. Yes. Uh, so worked for him for about, um, gosh, three years uh, up until his his death in 2019, and then continued working for the the new bishop, the current bishop of Madison, uh, Bishop Hying, uh, whom we're also very blessed to have. That was a scary moment. Uh, sitting working in a diocesan chancery uh, after the death of a bishop, wondering who's going to be appointed next. Um, and Bishop Hying has been a great blessing here. Um, and then just this past year, uh, I, I got back into teaching. So I had finished my doctorate uh, six years ago or so, but had continued working for the bishop. Um, and just this past year, took a new position as dean of faculty at the local classical Catholic high school. So my kids uh, had started attending this school. Uh, I was very impressed by it. Uh, I taught one class part-time uh, two years ago while I was working for the bishop uh, and was really impressed by by the school as a whole, by the faculty, by the students, and uh, and enjoyed being back in a classroom. So made, made the switch entirely this year. So as dean of faculty, I'm responsible for curriculum, academics, uh, hiring, and and training and, and working with the faculty, uh, as well as teaching a handful of courses. And then on the side, uh, just too many side projects to name probably, but, but I've been involved uh, with the Aquinas Institute for the Study of Sacred Doctrine, uh, up, located up in Green Bay, which is producing the, uh, the gorgeous, big blue hardcover uh, Latin English editions of St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, I've done some writing on the side for one peter five and other places uh i teach some uh virtual courses for holy apostles college and seminary uh which is based out in connecticut um i organize academic studies for the monks of Silverstream in ireland um so there's there's a too many things probably that i've got my fingers in uh, i'm so glad that you've added us to one of your side products so um so when did you sort of become a trad you <laughs> You, you were not you were not raised as a trad when did you no. sort of get into that no i was raised as a charismatic uh my wife oh, and i grew right. up in the charismatic community in in lansing michigan um when i was in college 
uh, at Ave Maria, one of my um, one of my work study assignments. So to, so to, to to pay the bills a little bit as I was going through college, what uh, was to um, was to sort the personal library of the academic dean, who was a priest named Father Neil Roy. Uh, Father Roy is a is a great scholar of the liturgy, and he had a personal library of, of thousands and thousands of books, uh, which were all in boxes. So I was I was uh, unboxing his books, um, cataloging them with with the Library of Congress numbers and sorting them uh, on the shelves, and and so I, as I was doing this, I'm, I'm opening up box after box of these books with very intriguing titles about the liturgy. Uh, and uh, at, at one point, uh, I cracked one open and started paging through it a little bit. And it was a Michael Davies book about the about the liturgical revolution, you know, kind of the destruction that had happened. And it was it was astonishing and eye opening because up until that moment, I had no idea that there was even such a thing as a previous form of the of the Roman rite. Uh, my 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 naive assumption was that the way that I had grown up going to mass was kind of the way mass had always been done, and if I had heard anything about liturgical changes, it was maybe just the fact that it used to be in Latin, right? So the perception uh, from the Novus Ordo side is often that the the change made was just a translation uh, of the mass from English to Latin, sorry, from Latin to English. Um, but so I started reading all of all of this. Um, really fascinating and and frankly horrifying uh, accounts of the liturgical uh, changes that had been made, how they came about, uh, different motivations behind them and things like that. Um, and so I, I got on the internet and started looking for where can I find one of these old Latin masses to see what it's like. Uh, found that St. Joseph at Parish in Detroit offered the uh, old mass uh, every Sunday at that point. This was before 2007 so this was under the indult but there was one in detroit um and so at least once or, or two or three times um went went down to to try out one of those masses while i was in college um and then continued to go back there occasionally when i could but it didn't it wasn't very often um when we moved to so this is an uh, this is an, maybe an unusual thing. So so a lot of people encounter the old rite, and are sort of converted by its by its beauty, and then start to learn the history. For me, that process worked in reverse. I was I was intellectually convinced of the of the superiority of the old rite before I had ever seen one. Uh, so so uh, I walked in not knowing what it was going to look like or feel like or be like, but already knowing that this was where I wanted to be. Um, but it took a long time for for it to become a regular part of my life just because of the availability of it and where I was. So when my wife and I moved to uh, Austria to, for my studies at the in, uh, International School in Austria, there was a strong contingent of uh, Byzantine Eastern Catholics from uh, Ukraine, Slovakia, Romania, various places. Uh, and so there was a, a, uh, a, a full and beautiful liturgical life lived in the Byzantine, uh, in the Byzantine liturgy, um, and because uh, because I was already convinced of the uh, that I wanted to experience traditional liturgy, uh, and had been exposed by that point a few times to the to the traditional Latin Mass, um, my wife and I and our family we started just going to that Byzantine Divine Liturgy uh, on a daily basis, and so so. So my my liturgical formation in an experiential sense to it to a large degree was formed through the Byzantine divine liturgy, uh, which I'm so grateful for. It's, it's absolutely magnificently beautiful. It's a bit of a it's kind of a gentle introduction for for somebody raised in a charismatic Novus Ordo world. It was a bit of a gentle introduction to traditional liturgy because it is it is more exuberant than the traditional Latin mass. Yeah. Uh, it, it engages. Um, there's there's more uh, dialogue chanting back and forth. There's more smells and bells. Um, so that was just a uh, wonderful, wonderful, beautiful experience. And then when we came back to the States uh, and I was teaching in Indiana, we lived close enough to a fraternity of St. Peter Parish that we were able to make that a regular part of our lives. So it's for it's probably the last 10 years now that um, 
the traditional Latin mass has been the basis of our of our family liturgical life. Uh, and then five years additional to that going back for the Byzantine. So 15 years um, kind of living, breathing uh, the traditional uh, liturgical life, first with the one lung and then with the other. Oh, thanks be to God. What a, what a blessing to have that. that. That's what I have too with the, with the both rights there. Uh, it's fantastic. What a blessing uh, indeed. There's there's one there's so many wonderful things in the east um, and uh, the riches riches spiritual riches. Um, so I wanted to ask you about um, the term theologian. This is something that I wrote in my first book, where um, when you read, for example, Ludwig Ott, he'll make a comment. He'll be talking discussing some doctrine and then he'll make a comment and say theologians distinguish between x y or you know they'll make a comment about these guys called theologians um whereas i can go on twitter and james martin will be talking about this theologian that he likes and he'll be like oh there's this great theologian who has this uh uh feminist critique of the bible or something like that um so there's an equivocation as to the term theologian here in one context it means one thing and in another can context, it means who knows what. Um, so can you maybe break down what is the difference between a theologian and just an academic with a PhD? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm inclined to go back to Socrates and, and answer by comparison with philosophy, because I think the same, you have a parallel uh, equivocation which is easier to break open with philosophy, but the same is going on with theology because the because the word philosophy means uh, lover of wisdom, right? So a philosopher is one who loves wisdom. But at the time of Socrates, there's this this professional group of sophists. I mean, semi-professional. Uh, they would take fees in order to instruct uh, pupils in in the art of winning arguments. I mean, so they were teaching rhetoric basically. <clears throat> But they were called sophists, uh, and Sophia is the Greek word for for wisdom, right? So they were portraying themselves as teachers of wisdom, but in fact, all they were doing was teaching rhetoric uh, with the with the explicit goal. Uh, I mean, one of their one of their advertising slogans, at least at least the way Socrates portrays them, is you know, we'll we'll teach you how to win even though you have the weaker argument. Uh, so so the the pursuit of genuine wisdom, the pursuit of truth was definitely not what they were after. Uh, and so Socrates, anyway, sets out this comparison between uh, the sophists who are um, uh, who are imposters uh, pretending to pursue wisdom, but in fact, um, in fact, pursuing power for the sake of gain. And what he's trying to do. Uh, as a philosopher to pursue wisdom. So with uh, with the contrast you're making with theologians, it, it's the same essential um, issue, except that except that the word doesn't break it open as well. So theologian means uh, means one who who thinks about God, right? Theos is God, logos is reason. So the theologian is one who who thinks about God. And I suppose just terminologically, that doesn't give you as clear an understanding as philosopher, which really means the lover of wisdom, right? So, but one who thinks about God, because you could think about God for, for wrong reasons. Um, so even the feminist critique of the Bible is a kind of thinking about God. Right, right. It's just, it's just a wrong, it's a, just a wrong thinking about God. Um, so you'd, ha you'd have to say a, there's a, there's a right, a right way of doing theology and a wrong way of doing theology or a, or a genuine theologian uh, and a kind of imposter theologian. And of course, the right way to think about God is to think about God in the way that he deserves to be thought of. So he has to be the standard uh, for our thought rather than rather than trying to mold or change him into our image. <clears throat> We're made in his image. So a right uh, a theologian ought to be one who uh, submits his mind to God, right? Submits the logos, the reason to God, receives his revelation by faith, and then in humility uh, and in a, in a spirit of, of prayer and uh, seeking for God, uh, tries to understand him more deeply. Uh, that, that's, a, 
that's a philosophical theologian or a mystical theologian. I mean, a philosophical in the sense of there's a love of wisdom, but now we're talking about wisdom as a person, so it's motivated by love. Uh, and it's a mystical theology because, <clears throat> because it's, uh, it's not a merely academic discipline. Uh, it's, being, um, uh, it's being taken up into uh, the mystery of God himself. Uh, whereas, yeah, I mean, um, an academic theologian, so, so these should not be mutually exclusive. An academic theologian should be a true theologian, but there, but there, uh, there is a way of approaching theology, which tries to, um, bracket off questions of faith, uh, which tries to treat this, the discipline of theology as if it were, uh, like any other human discipline, uh, and 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 when you do that, yeah, you 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 cut the heart right out of theology. Um, so uh, yeah, theology sure. properly. When when Ludwig Ah is talking about theologians, I'm pretty confident he's talking about theologians in in the proper sense. Um, but that's got to be a theology that presupposes faith, uh, and and that is characterized by genuine uh, love of God, pursuit of divine wisdom, uh, and a and a um and and an approach of of an approach that is that is drawn from prayer that integrates prayer i mean it doesn't mean every book about theology has to be talking about prayer but if the theologian isn't praying then he's not uh in touch personally with god and his and his understanding about god which he tries to express in his writing is going to is going to suffer from that defect that i'm glad you you said that I don't, have, I don't think I have the quote with me in front of me, but there's this great quote from St. Anthony of the Great of the Desert. Um, and he was illiterate. And there's a great story about how the Arians and the philosophers try to refute him. And he just destroys them uh, in an argument. Um, and he says that, um, and this was what taught was taught to me about the Desert Fathers, is that true theology is prayer. To be a true theologian is to be a man of prayer. That's what you just said like the the heart the lifeblood of the whole theological project but on that note um could you distinguish what makes um i mean is that kind of uh because theology theology is kind of an intellectual thing you know you're studying a book studying the, the science of theology um whereas prayer is a different thing than that so um could you speak at all to the the role of um, the heart in that, or uh, the role of the will in an intellectual pursuit? Yeah, well, it's difficult to speak precisely about. <clears throat> certainly, theology. Uh, certainly, theology is an intellectual work. It is. It is a. Uh, it's faith seeking understanding, in the classical formulation of. Of Saint Anselm, uh, or going back to Augustine as well. I mean, so it, it's, um, but it starts with so. So <clears throat> maybe the best way to say it is that the the intellectual work comes in the middle. Uh, it has to begin and end from the heart, so to speak. So uh, from the heart, which is which is the will, which is the 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 love of God, the desire. So from uh, from from the love of God. Well, I mean. Where, how far back do you want to go? So uh, faith comes first, of course, before uh, hope and charity. Um, but the faith is motivated by, uh, by the love of God. Yeah. From the, from the starting point of uh, believing what he's revealed and longing to know him better, right? So it comes from uh, that motivation first. Then the intellect... Uh, the intellectual work is then to to meditate on those mysteries that have been revealed and received by faith. Uh, always, uh, but the the work of the heart doesn't disappear there, right? So you can't bracket that off and say, okay, now we're just going to do a cold sort of analytical work. Uh, the meditation on the mysteries, I mean, the reason why you're meditating upon the truths that God has revealed is because you love him. And so you delight in thinking about him. And you long to know him more, but there is a real work of the intellect that goes on in trying to uh, in trying to, 
to understand, trying to, um, to penetrate the mysteries so far as we're capable of. And then also uh, trying to uh, defend the purity of the faith from attacks against it. There's a great uh, intellectual work that goes on where the reason is exercised uh, in, in preserving the purity of the deposit. But that, again, is motivated by love. So, so you can think in very human terms, uh, if, if I love a woman, I'm going to try to, to defend and protect her purity. Uh, so, if, uh, so my love for God is going to involve this work of uh, defending and protecting the purity of the, of the faith and the revelation that he's given to us. Um, so there, there are those. And, and, and when you do that, you, you, you use strict logic. You employ rigorous reasoning. Uh, you read a lot of books. You study. You think. Um, so there's a whole intellectual component to that. And the, and the rigor of that is not compromised by the motivation for it, but the motivation doesn't, uh, doesn't disappear. Um, and then uh, the result of the whole work uh, should be uh, a, a clearer understanding of God, um, which, which would result in a, in a deeper love of God. I mean, because the more you know of him, uh, the more you know his goodness, the more you know his mercy, uh, you can't help but loving him more. So, so uh, yeah, it begins, continues, and ends through, uh, with, in, and through love, but that doesn't, that doesn't compromise it being a, a genuinely intellectual work along the way. Sorry, you had asked about prayer. Where does prayer fit into any of that? I mean, so prayer is the lifeblood of the living relationship with God. That, um, so that the, the uh, and that relationship, which is uh, fed by prayer, that is uh, where the heartbeat of the love of God exists. Um, so yeah, so so prayer is what maintains the relationship. Uh, the relationship with God is what uh, fuels the intellectual endeavor. Uh, but the prayer and the love of God uh, is the necessary foundation throughout. Uh, I, I, that, that was just beautiful. It really summed up what I, I read from uh, when I read St. Thomas Aquinas and he says that charity the fruit of charity is union with god and the gift of the holy spirit of wisdom is the perfection of charity and so there's a direct line from knowing uh, knowing loving serving god and gaining wisdom and it's ultimately the what you want to add, add to that yeah well yeah wisdom is is beautiful i mean so in, in aquinas it's very clear you have kind of this degrees of wisdom so so philosophy in a certain sense is already is already a kind of wisdom so metaphysics is a kind of wisdom on a human level theology saint thomas says is uh, is wisdom on a higher level uh, but then that fruit of the holy spirit is wisdom on a still higher level so so that uh, i mean these are analogical terms right so so they're not uh, this not equivocal these are not three separate things we're talking about um, but the word is applied in a in a richer and a higher sense mm. uh, according to these degrees. So that wisdom, which is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, is is the pinnacle of the of the hierarchy of wisdom. <clears throat> Theology is is working your way up. Uh, and Gergou Lagrange is is great on that uh, that fruit of wisdom being kind of the essence of of contemplation. So in the spiritual life, uh, the the act of contemplation in prayer uh is is the is the work of the fruit of wisdom uh which as you say is is born out of charity beautiful um so we we kind of have all getting into the topic of the magisterium now um i think that that that's a really great foundation to really discuss now that we can get to the magisterium because there's a huge difference between the relationship of the theologian to the magisterium and just a mere academic because I, I i think pretty much every heretic is just an academic i mean he's he's some professor basically professor martin luther you know uh or or priests you know whatever they're, they're basically like these and, and you know in vatican ii we've had these issues with um perry t who are or even just hot shot theologians like hans kuhn you know who are these academics at a Catholic or the Catholic theologians at a Catholic university. And they're, they come to town and tell Joe Schmo in the pew who doesn't know any better. This is what the church now teaches. Um, but really they're just acting as these academics. So can you 
speak at all to what is the relationship of a true theologian to the magisterium versus these other guys who call themselves theologians? Well, the right the right relationship for a theologian to the magisterium is uh, is is certainly one of of uh, submission, respect, and deference. Um, but that has to, but all of that, even what the magisterium is, has to be understood properly in order to understand what you're supposed to be submitting to. Um, but fundamentally, right, the, the theologian's role is to submit to uh, the truths divinely revealed by God and try to uh, understand and explain them well, right? So, so divine revelation is the starting point. Uh, so what has God, what is the word of God revealed to us in scripture and tradition? Uh, and, but then in order for us to be able to access that, for us to be able to, to receive that divine revelation and to know what it is, uh, Christ has instituted the magisterium of the church to, uh, to preserve, protect, defend, uh, and hand on uh, that divine revelation to us. So the work of the theologian would never even get off the ground without the magisterium. Uh, so, uh, so we absolutely need the magisterium, first of all, in order to be able to recognize uh, rightly what is the contents of divine revelation. Uh, so that's the first level of the relationship of the theologian to the magisterium. Um, but then that word magisterium is used in different senses. So if it means the teaching office of the church, that's one thing, but then it's often used as well as the name for the hierarchy. So if by the magisterium, you mean the church's office of preserving and protecting the faith and passing it down to me, then I absolutely need that. It's the members of the hierarchy uh, who do that in a concrete sense, uh, but then the members of the hierarchy are not always doing that, right? They're also human beings who do other things. <clears throat> And uh, one of the first mistakes that we make, I think, is to is to just equate the magisterium and the hierarchy, right? The magisterium uh, is exercised by the hierarchy, but it's only one of the things that the hierarchy does, and they're not always exercising it. Because then, because then, the, if if we don't make that careful distinction, the the question changes and the relationship changes. So if if it becomes uh, well, in the first sense, the theologian's relationship to the magisterium uh, is submission, uh, full stop, to simply receive from the magisterium the revelation of God handed on to us. But if by magisterium we mean hierarchy in the broader sense, well, then, of course, to the members of the hierarchy, to the popes and bishops, uh, we still owe the uh, respect and deference and, generally speaking, submission but since they're human beings and are not always uh, acting properly, uh, there can be, there is uh, room for critique. And the theologian who has a special expertise uh, is, is, in a, um, is in a position uh, that not everybody's in. So, so I don't mean that in an exclusive or a prideful sense. There are lots of theologians who are not academics who nevertheless are genuine theologians in the sense of really have studied and meditated deeply and understand the contents of the faith well. Uh, there are probably lots of non-academic theologians who are better qualified theologians than lots of academic theologians. Uh, so this is not a matter of degrees or credentials or things like that. It just means that uh, the, more, the more broadly and deeply you've uh, studied the church's theology, the more equipped you are uh, to recognize deviations. Uh, and so there is a uh, there's a possibility for uh, for a critique of individual members or for, or for a critique of individual statements that come from members of the hierarchy, and that tends to be um, yeah well that tends to cause difficulty and confusion because because uh, when a theologian critiques a member of the magisterium, uh, it's hard for a lot of people to make that separation, and so oftentimes that'll look like simply dissenting from the magisterium uh, in, a, in a more general sense, uh, which of course we shouldn't do. So it's a, it's, a, um, it's, a delicate, it's a delicate work. Uh, and certainly 
the, the general disposition of a good Catholic theologian is always uh, submission to the teaching of the hierarchy, uh, always submission to the definitive teaching of the magisterium of the church, uh, always respect for the members of the hierarchy who exercise the magisterium. Um, but in the current day and age, it's especially important to, to be aware of the fact that uh, some room for a careful critique, which is based on uh, which is based on the truth of the gospel, is possible and can even be necessary. Maybe that's one more question worth making. Sorry, one more point worth clarifying. Um, uh, it's never acceptable to to critique uh, the, the teaching of a member of the hierarchy simply because it runs counter to my personal opinions or counter to uh, general social trends or counter to anything like that. If I'm going to uh, call into question the teaching of uh, of a bishop, it's going to be uh, on the basis of uh, divine revelation, right? So, so the magisterium exists in order to serve divine revelation. Lumen Gentium at Vatican II is very clear and helpful on this point that the magisterium is not above scripture and tradition. The magisterium is below scripture and tradition and exists to preserve and defend sacred scripture and tradition, not to overturn uh, or, or reinterpret them. So, so in a case where a member of the hierarchy, a member of the magisterium, uh, would be teaching something that seemed to be contrary to scripture or tradition, that would be the basis on which a theologian could, could challenge the claim, could ask for clarification, could, could point out, uh, you know, well, uh, you know, ask a question like, well, how does that fit with with this thing that we believe from Scripture uh, or what have you? Uh, or finally, could even say, well, that just seems to be wrong. Yes, yeah, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger released Donum Veritatis, which seems to describe exactly what you just said in terms of a, a proper, he makes a distinction between theologians who just go to the mass media and he, I, I always read I read that I think Hans Kuhn he's thinking of Hans Kuhn it's exactly what he did uh but um and then he talks about other theologians who uh cannot in their conscience assent to something that seems contrary or something like that and so he they they initiate a a, a I think the phrase that he uses is some sort of dynamic dialogue where the theologian is offering this for the sake of the church and for the sake of the bishops, and it could actually lead to a clarification, lead to a sharpening of that clarity of the doctrine of the faith. Um, yeah, it should. It should be a fruitful dialogue between theologians and members of the hierarchy. That's certainly the way Donum Veritatis envisions the right relationship between uh, theologians and, uh, and bishops. Now, in order for that dialogue to be fruitful, you need the parties on both sides of that dialogue to be uh, to be acting in goodwill, right? To, to, to be striving for the same goal. Uh, and when that happens, I think you you do see that that clarification and that and that refinement of expression that is able to um, to, to bring the question to a point of clarity and truth. Um, it doesn't always. I mean, it seems to often not work well that way. Uh, because either side or both, I mean, uh, theologians are often are often not motivated purely by pursuit of truth and defense of the gospel, and uh, and and bishops sometimes as well. So, um, yeah, when other motives get mixed in there, that relationship doesn't work as well as it ought. But that's true, I think, of any human institution or relationship. Yeah, of course. Um, can you mention um, <clears throat> because? Um, the term magisterium was coined in the 19th century. Am I right? Yeah, correct? as far as I know. I mean, it, I hesitate to make an absolute claim. Okay. The earliest use I've seen of it is Gregory the 16th in like the 1830s. That's, that's what I thought of, if memory served. But um, there's just an interesting, there's always been a magisterium, obviously. Found, it's a divine foundation. But the yes. term, I mean, these terms come into play because they're making explicit something that was implicit. That's how doctrinal development really works, according to Gary Lagrange. Um, but there's an interesting thing that happens in the 19th century because um, Clement XIV 
bows to political pressure and suppresses the Jesuits who were um, the good Jesuits way back then. Uh, not all of them were good, but they were, you know, they were, they were uh, running educational institutions worldwide. And so they, the, all these secular powers were able to seize all these resources and they're also imposing public education and all these, the unit, they're taking over the university system basically. And so the Catholic university system, as it was, as it was, uh, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas's Catholic university system uh, really was no more at that point. This is like late 18th century. Um, and then you have theologians who are trying to sort of pick up the pieces and restore that office of theologian that used to be. Um, and uh, because I wanted to, the, my, my main question in this context here is, um, is the bishop sort of the head theologian of the diocese? Is he sort of, uh, would you consider him to be the, the theologian and then theologians are kind of act as his priests, vicars who are uh, a part of the diocese? Would you say the bishop is the theologian? Yeah, I think I, I would want to say that. It's a new thought. I've not I've not ever thought of it in that terms. But I mean, he, he certainly should be. That, that would belong to his role uh, by right and by office, right? That he ought to be. He's the successor of the apostle. Uh, I mean, so so um, the, the the apostles were certainly the first theologians, and and the uh, and the archetypes for all later theologians. So to receive the word of God, to meditate upon it, to defend it in its purity, to to explain it in its fullness, uh, that all is the role of the bishop in the diocese. Uh, and and like like in so many other ways, uh, he he enlists the help of of a large number of other people to, to, to aid him in that work. And some of that work is uh, in the sacramental work, which is, which is strictly clerical. He, he works through his priests and deacons and vicars uh, and in, a role of, uh, in the role of teaching, uh, which is what the work of theology is ordered towards. Uh, he works through a lot of lay folk as well. And, and um, you could, I mean, you could think of parents in that role. Parents are the... Are the are the original theologians for their children, um, uh, in that sense of. I don't want to reduce theology all the way down to just catechesis, um, but there's a, there's a, uh, there's a clear ordering between those things. Um, so yeah, I think I would want to say that the bishop is the, is the chief theologian for his diocese, um, but not in an exclusive sense. I mean. Uh, to meditate upon the truths, the work of theology is not an exclusive uh, thing. I think to one degree or another, uh, we're all called to engage in the work of theology um, because uh, it's not enough simply to uh, simply to receive the truths of faith and then just hold them blindly without, without trying to understand them uh, would seem inadequate. Yeah, like you said, it's just it's just the love of God ultimately. And we're all commanded to love God. And we're also, so we're all doing a little bit of theology in our own way from least to the greatest. Um, final comments, uh, Dr. Joy, can you tell us about um, your, your series on the magisterium? What are some common pitfalls that you want to address in this series to try to help the common lay folk understand the magisterium? Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I intend to cover a little bit of everything. So, so I want to do a series that will, that will really cover all the bases that takes some doing because the, the magisterium is one of these topics where questions usually arise at a hundred different points and you start to, to dig in to answer a question and it just sort of branches out into a bunch more questions and you often feel like you're not getting anywhere. Um, and so in my own research, I found it to, to be necessary. Uh, to have an, an orderly overview of the whole uh, in order to be able to properly understand any one of the parts. And I think one of the reasons why internet dialogues about the magisterium often feel so frustrating and fruitless uh, is because we're always just trying to dig out a part without the, without the full context of the whole. Um, now, one of the things that seems to be most uh, pressing most anxiety-inducing uh, for faithful Catholics these days is that question you touched upon earlier about um, 
when exactly is it okay for me to not agree with something that a pope or a bishop says? That seems to be where the rubber hits the road for a lot of people. Uh, as Catholics, we want to be submissive to the magisterium. We want to be obedient. Uh, we have an allergic reaction towards anything that even could smell like dissent. And th right. th those are all good, good instincts. Um, uh, so I want to be able to... Um, but that question, so I want to be able to answer that question well, uh, of when exactly are you allowed to not agree with something that a pope or a bishop says, because there are some cases. Um, but I don't want anyone to just have to take my word for it, because why would you, right? Um, so I want to be able to, to, to give the full picture of the magisterium and its nature and its operations uh, so that you can see for yourself, hopefully, how the answer to that question fits organically within the whole and makes sense rather than uh, asking you to rely on yes, somebody else's uh, explanation for why you can or can't in a given case um, agree or disagree with the Pope or the bishops. Yeah. That, and that's it. It's, I, I'm really, really excited for this because it really uh, some, I mean, I, uh, I have a hard time understanding some of the higher academic stuff um, and uh, I think others as well. So it'll be great to just have a, a very sort of one-on-one class with uh, Dr. John Joy. So Dr. Joy uh, is a pleasure as always. Once again, if you want to dig deep into the, the meat of this right now, go and buy his books. You've got um, Aruka Press, got the dissertation. I'll put all the links in the below. I don't have them right now, but you got... Uh, uh, the dissertation from Aruka Press, Disputed Questions on Papal Infallibility from Os Eusti Press, and The Heart of Our Theology, The Cross of Jesus Christ. So with that, let's offer everything to Our Lady Seat of Wisdom and uh, ask her to uh, pray for this whole endeavor um, for, for true wisdom and uh, true understanding of God so we can know him, know, love, and serve him in this life and the next. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen.